When you're done browsing, why not come warm yourself by the fire? We promise we won't bite. We might even tell you a story. Or two. Maybe offer you a biscuit? Or two. This week's flavour is some very nice ginger snaps with fresh ginger and some dry ginger, so it's a big old punch in the mouth. Mm. Now where were we? Ah, yes. Up the close and down the stair, in the house with Burke and Hare. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, knocks the man who buys the beef. Burke and Hare, they were a pair, killed a wife and didn't care. Then they put her in a box and sent her off to Dr. Knox. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, Knox. The end that buys the beef. In 1823, UK Parliament signed the Judgment of Death Act, which stated that capital punishment was now only to be used for the most heinous of crimes. Previously, there were over 200 convictions which carried a mandatory sentence of death. This was a great result for most especially the more unsavoury characters of the time. An unpredicted consequence, however, was the sudden shortage of bodies available to the medical profession. You see, the law stated that anatomy schools were only allowed to dissect the cadavers of those who had been condemned to death. Throughout history, the University of Edinburgh's medical programme was renowned for their fierce pursuit of knowledge and anatomical discovery. Envied around the world, their research heavily relied on a consistent stream of corpses arriving at the theatre doors. The fresher, the better. The Judgment of Death Act did not apply to Scotland, so while there were more cadavers available compared to the rest of Britain, it still wasn't enough for these professors. Fainting students be damned, their work was of the utmost importance, and a halt in the supply chain was simply not acceptable. A little financial compensation was a small price to pay for fresh bodies brought to them, no questions asked. 
Why should the doctors trouble themselves where this regular stream of bodies came from? They had far more pressing matters to attend to. Financial compensation often draws a certain type of criminal, not one who is motivated by violence, but one who will use it when necessary. Rumours of disturbed graves started to circle, spoken in whispers as light as the air. For those hoping to make a few bob, and who preferred not to have to explain new bruises, grave robbing seemed like the perfect hustle. These people were dead, not likely to put up a good fight like the madams with the scarlet windows. They also wouldn't squeal like the well-to-do office clerks you threatened with blades of silver. No, these unfortunates were quiet and malleable. Perhaps a little smelly, but the scent of death was never far away in overcrowded cities like Edinburgh. If you, like many enterprising criminals of the time, spent your evenings in the taverns of Grassmarket, or hung around Surgeon Square when the students had long left for the night, chances are you may have crossed paths with a pair of body snatchers so dastardly that their names still echo through the winding closes of Edinburgh. William Hare led an elusive early life. It is unclear where exactly he grew up, reports ranging between County Armagh and Newry. As there were not many job prospects at the time, Hare likely worked as an agricultural labourer from his early teens. To succeed in farm labour, you need to be strong. If you were easily tired or weak of spirit, you wouldn't last long. Like thousands of Irish men at the time, Hare came to Scotland in 1818 to work as a manual labourer on the Union Canal, which runs from Falkirk to Edinburgh. At the time, he was described as uncouth, a man both illiterate and quarrelsome. His fierce temper was only exacerbated by alcohol. For seven years, he worked the canal, fingers often shaking as he lit a cigarette in the fierce Scottish chill. After the job was complete, Hare started work as a lumper, someone who unloads carts, where he met James Logg, a decent, hard-working man who ran a lodging house in Tanner Close with his wife, Mary. Hare took up a room there, but was asked to leave soon after he arrived, following an argument with James about rent payments. In 1826, Logg passed away unexpectedly, and Hare immediately returned, rumoured to have made advances to the widow. It wasn't long before the two were married. This new income allowed Hare to sit back and relax, no longer needing to waste time finding work, instead spending most days furiously drunk and argumentative. Mary herself was often reported to be ready to drink and quarrel, so we can assume that their relationship was tumultuous. Much more is known about his partner in crime, William Burke. Born in early 1792 in the small parish of Ory, Burke grew up in a Catholic household, one of two sons. Like his brother, he enlisted in the Donegal military, often performing as a fifer. During this time, 
he worked as a personal assistant to an officer of the regiment. This extra income provided him with the means to propose to a pretty young woman he had met in the city of Bolina. When his regiment was eventually disbanded, Burke moved in with his wife's family, taking up employment as a servant to a country gentleman. It is also reported that for a time he worked as a cobbler. From the stories we have heard about Burke, this seems like a very respectable start for a man who participated in such heinous crimes. But bear with us. A couple of years and children into the marriage, Burke was keen that he should receive a plot of land from his father-in-law. When the man did not agree, Burke flew into a fierce rage and they argued. Burke was so angry that the next morning he left his wife without so much as a kiss and travelled to Scotland, never to return to his wife and children again. Upon arrival, Burke found employment, just like Hare, on the construction of the Union Canal. He was working further east, residing in Maddiston. It was in this small village that Burke met his less infamous partner in crime, Helen McDougall. Before she met William Burke, Helen was already deemed as scandalous by the local community. She had met a married Sawyer with the name MacDougall, and it wasn't long before she found herself pregnant. When his poor wife passed away prematurely, Helen moved in with MacDougall, taking his name even though there was no official marriage. After the family moved to Leith for work, MacDougall was suddenly struck down by typhus and died a few days later. Penniless, Helen was forced to move back to Madison. It's not known when Burke and MacDougall's paths crossed, but their shared reliance on alcohol suggests that it may have been at a local pub. Their relationship moved quickly, with Burke moving into Helen's house after only a few days, where they lived together as if they were married. Scandalised, the local priest advised Burke to return to his family in Ireland and avoid living in sin any longer. While it does seem that he was a God-fearing man, later confessing to consuming so much alcohol in order to forget about their crimes, Burke refused to leave Helen. It seems that they didn't live a particularly happy life, with reports stating blazing rows were heard through the walls at all times of night. At some point, Burke had an affair with a younger woman, supposedly a friend of Helen's who lived with them at the time. Often, the woman would physically fight each other. Burke would generally sit back while it happened, until one evening where the younger woman was losing, so he dragged Helen aside and beat her until it was thought she may be beyond recovery. At some point, the couple moved to Edinburgh and took a room in the Beggar's Hotel in Grassmarket run by the seedy Mickey Colzine. While there, Burke resumed his work as a cobbler, able to make between 15 and 20 shillings a week. When a catastrophic fire burnt down the building, they moved again, this time to work the harvest near Pennequick in the autumn of 1827. After the job was complete, the couple returned to Edinburgh and met with an old acquaintance of Burke's. Miss Margaret Hare. She ran the lodging house in Tanner's Close, and when, over a glass of liquor, 
Burke expressed his plan to travel to the West Country to seek employment, Margaret insisted that both he and Helen took lodgings within her house. She also encouraged him to set up a shoe repair business in the cellar after Helen had mentioned his previous work as a cobbler. This space was where her husband, William Hare, sometimes kept his donkey. With that chance encounter, the history of Edinburgh and body snatching would be forever changed. Christmas in 1827 brought about a bitter chill that the lodging house's windows barely kept out. An elderly soldier by the name of Donald had been living in Tanner's Close for some time. When Mary found him dead one morning, reports say from natural causes, Hare was furious that the man still owed them four pound in rent. It was unlikely they would receive it from any of his family members. As he stewed, Mary alerted the local doctors and funeral arrangements were made. The coffin stayed in the house until it was time for the ceremony. Not an uncommon fact during the 19th century, but an eerie one, even so. Pouring himself and Burke a drink one evening, a sudden thought occurred to her. With the old codger already dead and the coffin bolted shut, there wasn't any way for his family to check whether the coffin actually contained Donald. Hare had many unsavoury friends, one of whom had mentioned that a certain medical professor named Dr Knox was willing to provide a tasty sum of money for a fresh body and never asked any difficult questions about where it had come from. Smirking, Hare ran his idea by Burke, who later told the court that being a God-fearing man, he was uncomfortable with the prospect. Several drinks and some fierce persuasion later, and Burke finally agreed to the act, as long as Hare promised to split the proceeds equally. They prized open the coffin, likely gagging at the smell that was released. Then they removed the body, hiding it under the deceased's bed, and then filling the box with Tanner's bark. They immediately sent the coffin to be buried. It seemed Donald didn't have anyone locally to mourn his death, so it was a quick service. That evening, under the cover of dark, the men put Donald's body into a sack and travelled to Surgeon's Square. Hare remained near the cart while Burke approached the door to Knox's classroom. He was noticed by a student called Leeton, who later wrote in his diary that a dour-looking man with grey eyes and a stout body gruffly asked if he was Dr Knox. This young man was an assistant to Knox and had often handled the purchase of bodies. He was rather short with Burke, frustrated that the man didn't speak in the correct code. After being ushered into a large theatre where three other assistants stood, Burke asked, and what do you give for one? When the young student replied that it often went as high as £10, Burke asked hauntingly whether there would be a pound more for a fresh one. The men carried Donald's body into the classroom, where Dr Knox and the assistants began their examination. For their entrepreneurship, the pair were paid £7 and 10 shillings, a small fortune, and told if ever they had any other bodies to dispose of. 
the doctor would gladly see them again. Giddy with such a large amount of money in their pockets, Burke and Hare returned to their wives, pulling them up out of their chairs and heading to their favourite tavern. Swaggering in through the doors, they greeted the bartender in high spirits before buying meals of hot roasted pig to wash down with ale. At some point during the evening, talk likely turned to the clandestine world of resurrectionists. Hare already knew several men who would claim to have body snatched once or twice. He knew it was back-breaking work when the ground was frozen and nauseating in the summer, but they had both worked as labourers in the past and could manage their fair share of hardship. Why shouldn't the two of them profit just as these fiends do? There was a problem with this plan, however. It was well known that society as a whole deemed resurrectionists to be the most abhorrent criminals. Death, after all, was supposed to be respected. Body snatchers would religiously scour the papers for death announcements, then sneak into graveyards a few hours after the funeral to dig up the corpses. Some bribed clergymen performing the funerals. Others approached the funeral homes directly to remove the body before it even entered the ground. The upper classes had mausoleums built to protect their bodies from being snatched, but the poor were forced to beg their friends and relatives to keep watch at their gravesite until enough time had passed that their bodies would no longer be wanted. The grave robbing epidemic led to the invention of various devices that could protect graves, including mort safes and American coffin torpedoes. The latter was a ridiculously dangerous yet effective coffin that would fire lead balls if the lid was pried open, acting like a shotgun and incapacitating grave robbers. In Edinburgh, the problem got so bad that several watchtowers were built so that graveyards could be watched over night and day to prevent graves from being disturbed. A particularly famous one is the new Colton Cemetery Watchtower. Families could stay there for the night, or a security guard would be hired. Sadly, the payment for a fresh body would equate to several months' wages, so many guards chose to look the other way. All of these obstacles made the men question whether the payoff would be worth it. Years earlier, a resurrectionist named John Samuel had been whipped by an angry mob for transporting the corpse of a young girl. He was banished from Scotland for several years, but the mob wanted him dead. They attacked his family, then burnt his house to the ground. If Burke and Hare could just get their hands on dead bodies without having to risk entering a graveyard, it would be so much easier. That's when someone got an idea. A horrible idea. Now it's not known whether it was Burke or Hare who suggested it. It may even have been one of their wives. Whoever it was, from that night onwards, the men decided that there was no need for them to actively seek victims or dig up the ground and risk arrest. If Donald could die in the lodging house, then why couldn't other tenants? There were so many different bodies available to them. Bodies that wouldn't stay alive for long. Rumoured to be the pair's first victim, 
Joseph had been a lodger at Tanner Close for several months after losing his job as a partner of the Karen Iron Company. In December, he became ill, suspected to be from an infectious fever. Not wanting rumours to spread about the house being unclean, lest they lost business, and therefore future victims, the men agreed that Joseph should be dealt with as soon as possible. As he lay sleeping, Burke laid a pillow over the man's face and hair lay across his body to keep his arms and legs pinned to the bed. As he slowly suffocated, the poor man had little energy to fight. Once he had died, Burke and Hare once again returned to Surgeon's Square where they made ten pounds. Clearly, the fresher the body, the bigger the payment. It is not known how many murders the pair committed, or in what order, but what we do know is that they formed their own method of killing, which newspapers later named Burking. They would lure a victim to their rooms with the promise of drink and merriment. After several hours of drinking, they would suffocate their victim, then hide them under the bed until they could transport the body to the university. Although the suffocation was initially performed by Burke, it was decided that as some of their victims may put up more of a fight than poor Joseph, it should be Burke that led across the bodies as he was shorter and stronger than Hare. The same fate befell Abigail Simpson, an old and weak woman who had travelled to the city to collect a payment from a gentleman friend. After spending a large portion of it on alcohol in a tavern near Grassmarket, she was a little worse for wear. And worse was yet to come. What she couldn't have known was that Hare had been watching her from across the room. Feigning a shocked expression, Hare approached her and insisted that the two had met before. Being in good spirits, she saw no reason why this man would lie to her and allowed him to buy her a drink. When they were finished, it was easy for her to persuade Abigail to accompany him home, where they could have a dram together in honour of their happy meeting. Once inside the house, Abigail was treated kindly and introduced to Burke as an old friend of Hare's. Whiskey flowed freely throughout the evening and songs were sung. Mary insisted she stayed the night being too drunk to get home safely. For some reason, they decided not to kill her that night. Whether it was because they had become too drunk to successfully carry out the deed, or they were simply afraid to, everyone retired to bed, safe and well. At some point the next morning, Abigail started vomiting. As we all know, hangovers can be brutal and she cried to be taken home to her daughter. When she asked for water, one of the men brought her whiskey, and in desperation to wash her mouth out, she accepted it. As she closed her eyes for a moment, Hare placed his large hand over her mouth and nose as Burke laid across her body, weighing her down. I can only imagine her eyes snapped open, shock and fear coursing through her, as she desperately tried to push the larger man off of her. After it was done, the pair received another ten pounds. 
Although the men were drinkers before, the amount they now consumed was obscene. While they were alcoholics by today's standard, many think that the increase in consumption was to cloud the visions of their victims. As the months passed, Burke and Hare killed several more people, mostly women as they tended to be smaller and weaker, and therefore easier to suffocate. One cadaver to end up in the theatre was known to several students, and perhaps, most scandalously, Dr Knox. Mary Patterson was a prostitute who had been very popular with the local clientele. It's very possible that at least one of the men there that day may have solicited her. Mary and her friend Janet Brown were lured back to the lodging house with the promise of drinks and a good time, likely after meeting in the pub. Janet excused herself to the bathroom at some point in the evening. When she returned, she was told Mary had left in a huff after quarrelling with Hare. Likely annoyed at being abandoned, Janet decided to return home. Luckily for her, she didn't spot Mary's body lying in the next room. If she had, the men would not have spared her life. As spring came around and the ground became easy to dig once more, Burke and Hare found they had competition. This drove the price for each body down from £10 to 8 like any astute businessman, the pair knew that in order to maintain their profits, they would have to increase production. And sadly, with greed, comes carelessness. Little is known about the next two victims. Reports at the time state they were an old woman and her grandson. It's also said that Burke broke the boy's back over his knee. Perhaps the most shocking murder was that of Helen's aunt, Anne. Clearly, family ties meant nothing to the group. Their penultimate victim showed just how reckless the pair were becoming. During the 1820s, Grouse Market was home to several pubs, shops and lodging houses which were built for those unable to pay a regular rent. In later years, the city public health department recorded seven lodging houses on one street with an unbelievable 414 inhabitants. With the already crowded population, then the influx of Irish immigrants moving into the area, it's reasonable to think that the victims would have been untraceable. Strangely, however, the Williams chose someone known by the community, someone who was instantly recognizable. James Wilson, known as Daft Jamie by locals, was an 18-year-old boy who charmed the community with his affable personality, performing songs, telling jokes, and performing acts of calculation on the street in return for food, drinks, money, and his favorite payment of all, snuff. Although people weren't always sensitive towards his learning disability, he was beloved. It's also important to note that he was an instantly recognizable figure Jamie had deformed feet, which caused him to walk with a dramatic limp, which was noticed by all who met him. He was also over six feet tall. In his recorded confession, Burke insisted he had never met Jamie before. This seems incredibly unlikely, 
He had lived in Edinburgh for several years at this point and spent most of his time in the pubs of Grassmarket. There is no doubt he would have come into contact with Jamie numerous times, or at the very least heard many tales about him. In September 1828, Jamie was seen wandering through Grassmarket, asking everyone he came across if they had seen his mother. At some point, he happened to pass Mary, who told him his mother was currently attending a meeting in her lodging house. With no reason to suspect foul play, Jamie accompanied Mary home. When they arrived, he was offered a whiskey, which he didn't immediately accept. He had always been wary of alcohol, but after some persuading, he took a few sips while he waited for his mother. Soon he felt unwell, so Hare took him into a small bedroom where most of the other victims had ended up, so he could have a lie down. The two watched him closely, waiting for any sign of him falling asleep. Bert grew tired of waiting and leapt onto Jamie. Unfortunately for them, Jamie was young and strong and had not had anywhere near as much to drink as most of their victims. Jamie threw Burke off and was soon standing, confused and upset at the sudden attack. He was known to be afraid of violence, believing it to be what bad boys do. Burke continued to try and subdue him and Jamie continued to fight. Hare stood and watched, not bothering to intervene until Burke threatened to put a knife in him if he didn't start helping. The two of them forced Jamie to the ground, then assumed the usual positions. Burke lying on the body, hair covering the mouth and nose. Jamie fought valiantly, but in the end, he was simply outnumbered. The viciousness of his death left the pair with several painful bruises. When they were certain he was dead, Hare searched Jamie's pockets, stealing his beloved snuffbox. Before they headed to Surgeon Square, his clothes were stripped and passed on to Burke's nephews. Usually the victim's clothes were destroyed to prevent detection, so this change from the norm seems especially cruel. There can be little doubt that Jamie was recognised upon delivery at the hospital. While Dr Knox later swore that he never knew the identity of any bodies he dissected. It remains a fact that before presenting the cadaver to his students, he had Jamie's head and deformed feet removed. The last victim of Burke and Hare was Mary Doherty, an elderly Irish woman who had arrived in Edinburgh looking for her son. On the 31st of October, Burke was in a local grocer's talking to the assistant when Mary entered. He struck up a conversation using the familiarity of his accent to put her at ease. He told Mary he thought she was somehow related to his mother, also named Doherty. Feigning a good spirit, he invited her for breakfast at his house and she agreed. Once they arrived, Helen made Mary welcome while Burke went out in search of hair. It was the first time a victim hadn't been taken back to Tanner's Close and it would turn out to be a big mistake. Finding hair in Rhymer's public house, Burke reportedly told his friend he had found a good shot to take to the doctors. Back at the house though, 
there was a problem. They already had a lodger in the extra room in Burke's house. A soldier named James Gray and his wife had been lodging in the room for little more than a week and had already managed to get under Burke's skin. He did not trust them and worried their presence would jinx their plans. Burke explained to Mr. and Mrs. Gray that Mrs. Doherty was a relative of his mother's, so it would not do for her to seek accommodation anywhere else while she was staying in the city. He told them he could provide other lodgings if they would consent to a swap. A room was easily found in Hare's lodging house, so the couple left. That evening, a merry party was organised for Mary, with Hare and his wife joining the revelry. Irish ballads were sung and dances were danced, at one point so vigorously that Mary injured her ankle. As it grew later, neighbours heard a great disturbance between 10 and 11pm. One noted that upon looking through the keyhole, they saw a woman pouring whiskey down Mrs Doherty's throat. After 11, a fight broke out between Burke and Hare. It is unknown if this was a legitimate argument or just another deception to antagonise the victim. There had also been a fight just before Mary Patterson's murder. As the men were fighting, Mary, tipsy as she was, got up in an attempt to stop them, asking Burke to sit down as she did not wish to see him abused. The fight continued, and while it is unclear whether it was intentional, Hare knocked Mary over and she fell onto a wooden stool. The wives slipped out of the house while their husbands got to work. Mary was crumpled on the floor, unable to rise. For unknown reasons, they didn't follow the usual method. One of them grasped her violently by the throat, leaving significant bruising around the neck. Perhaps Hare once again refused to get involved, and Burke was forced to incapacitate Mary alone. Once she was dead, Burke removed her clothes and covered her body with a pile of straw in the corner of the room. He then brought Dr Knox's porter to the room and pointed to the corpse, telling him he was to come to collect it in the morning. When the porter left, the four friends resumed their raucous Halloween evening. When Mr and Mrs Gray returned the next morning, they were eager to know where the old woman had gone. Burke told them that after consuming too much alcohol, she grew angry and violent, so they had asked her to leave. This explanation would have been acceptable if Burke wasn't acting strangely. He sloshed drams of whiskey around the room, onto and under the bed, presumably to try and hide any smells coming from the body. When Mrs Gray went to search for a misplaced belonging, Burke followed her around the room, offering to search for her. Stranger still, when he had to leave the house, he instructed a visitor called Brogan to sit on a chair near the straw and not move until he returned. By now, Mrs. Gray was incredibly suspicious, and after Brogan left, she approached the pile of straw. Within, she found the naked body of the old Irish woman they had seen the previous day. Her husband lifted Mary's head and saw there was blood about the mouth and ears. Horrified, the couple threw the straw back over the body and packed their things. On the stairs, they bumped into Helen and demanded to know what had gone on. 
She fell to her knees, begging Mr. Grey to keep silent in exchange for a large bribe. As one of the only decent men in this story, Mr. Grey refused, saying that his conscience would not allow him to keep such a secret. The couple quickly left, heading straight for the police station. With the end in sight, Helen and Mary left the house. Meanwhile, Burke and Hare were busy rearranging to transport Mrs. Doherty's body to the hospital. After acquiring a box, they wrapped her body and waited for the porter to arrive. The old Irishwoman was worth ten pounds. When police searched Burke's home, they found a quantity of blood among the straw and a striped bedgown that supposedly belonged to the deceased. He and Helen were soon taken into custody. Meanwhile, Gray was asked to view the body just delivered to Surgeon Square. Immediately identifying her as Mary Doherty, police realised that this was more than just a petty fight between Gray and Burke. At eight o'clock on Sunday morning, William Hare and his wife Mary were also arrested. News soon spread through the crowded city. As the names Burke and Hare began to circulate, several people came forward about their belief that the mysterious disappearances of Daft Jamie and Mary Patterson may well be linked to the pair, as Mary had been seen in Burke's company several times before her death. As you can imagine, Burke, Hare and their wives lie through their teeth in the initial interviews. First they said the woman had left of her own accord, then that she had died of alcohol poisoning and they were forced to get rid of her body. After several interviews, it became clear that there wasn't sufficient evidence to convict. Growing desperate, the Lord Advocate offered Hare a deal, something that wasn't common then. Hare was told, whatever share you may have had in the transaction, if you now speak the truth, you can never afterwards be questioned in a court of justice. Hare gladly agreed to give evidence against Burke if he and his wife would be spared. They left the jail that evening, disappearing into the crowd. It seems there's no honour among thieves or murderers. As the day of Burke and MacDougall's trial loomed, public interest grew and grew. Few facts had been released at this point, so the sense of excitement was palpable. On the 24th of December, the pair were brought from the Colton Hill Jail. It was written in a local paper that no trial that has taken place for a number of years past has excited such an unusual and intense interest. By 9am, the courtroom was full. 45 jurors had been called from Edinburgh, Leith, Linlithgow and Haddington. Several witnesses were called, including neighbours, police surgeons, family members and friends of the pair. No witness caused as big as a sensation as a hare. As he approached the dock, Burke is reported to have turned pale, then a vicious cloud of anger passed across his face. Interestingly, he was only called to give evidence in the murder of their last victim, Mary Doherty. According to his account, Burke had carried out the murder alone, while Hare sat watching from a chair. He also told the court that he was not involved in selling her body to the university. Mr. Coburn, 
Burke's lawyer wasn't going to let him get away with this and continued to push him, asking several times if Hare had taken any other bodies to Surgeon Square. The Lord Justice Clerk warned Hare that while he had been granted immunity, if he was found to incriminate himself in the illegal trade of corpses, he would be under no protection of the court. Quickly realising the danger he was in, Hare started to reply not to answer that after each question, meaning no comment. Now it was time for Mary's cross-examination. She sat in the witness box, carrying her newborn, who was suffering from whooping cough. Throughout the interview, little coughs could be heard echoing through the room. Presumably, this was a ploy by the prosecution to evoke the jury's pity. Her testimony lined up almost perfectly with her husband's. Clearly, they had come up with the story together before they were apprehended. The trial lasted only a day, proceedings running from 10am on the 24th to 8am the next morning. After it was done, the Lord Justice told the court the following. It is my duty to endeavour to remove that alarm which prevails out of doors and to afford all the protection which the law can give to the community against the perpetration of such crimes by bringing the parties implicated to trial. I am fully determined that everything in my power shall be done to bring to light and punishment those deeds of darkness which have so deeply affected the public mind. Speaking directly to the jury, he pointed out that it would have been impossible to commit these crimes without assistance. It was also said that upon allowing these pair to go free, the people would go right back to their wicked ways. The public had remained entirely ignorant of the extent of their crimes, and if it wasn't for the trial, many more may have lost their lives. The prosecution implored the jury to think of their relatives, their friends and themselves before allowing the pair to be set free. Burke was convinced he and his wife would be put to death. He is reported to have instructed Helen on how to conduct herself upon sentencing. After only 50 minutes, the jury returned to court. Mr John McPhee, a merchant from Leith, was tasked with reading out the verdict as follows. The jury find the panel, William Burke, guilty and find the case not proven against the panel, Helen McDougall. A cheer rang out among the courtroom and Burke breathed a sigh of relief, turning to his wife and saying, Nellie, you're out of the scrape. On the day of Burke's execution, Lawn Market was awash with a crowd of around 25,000. In the days leading up to his death, with hatred for Hare still coursing through him, Burke confessed to all the crimes the pair had committed. The only one he denied any part in was the murder of Darth Jamie, declaring, I am as innocent of Darth Jamie's blood as you are. He confessed to over 30 trips to Surgeon's Square to sell bodies, many of those being local prostitutes who had disappeared suddenly from the streets. At 8am, Burke was led up the gallows to cries of Burke him, give him no rope, and do the same for hair, weigh them together. A cotton nightcap was pulled over his face and the rope secured. 
all the while Burke recited a prayer. As the executioner pulled the lever, William Burke danced alone at the end of a rope. In a satisfying conclusion, Burke's body was donated to the university to be dissected, just like his victims before him. Dr. Munro began the lecture by sawing the top of the skull off and exposing the brain. It was described as being unusually soft, which was apparently common among criminals. The audience for this particular lesson was reported to be at least three times the usual number. At some point, the crowd outside the building got so unruly that the police decided to throw open the doors so the public could take a look at the murderer's body and then be on their way. After the crowd had dispersed, several parts of Burke's body were cut away to be preserved for future lectures. Parts of his skin were given away to students. One had a calling card case made from it. Another had the skin tanned, then had portraits of Burke and his wife, along with hair and his, printed onto the surface, offering the oddity to a collector, Mr. Fraser, who displayed it for many years. Another gruesome souvenir can be seen in the Surgeon's Hall Museum as you enter the main gallery. A pocketbook made from Burke's tanned skin is displayed, printed gold letters on the front reading, Burke's Skin Pocketbook. Inside is written his execution date and the original pencil that came with the book is tucked neatly inside. Many of the specimens in Surgeon's Hall are extremely controversial. This one, however, is never deemed as such, perhaps because the community has still not forgiven the pair. Burke's skeleton was then defleshed and put on display in the Anatomical Museum at the University of Edinburgh, where it can still be seen today. The public were not satisfied with the punishment of Burke alone. The evidence given in court showed that Hare and his wife, as well as Helen, were just as guilty of the offences. People began to believe that Hare was actually the leader in these crimes and that he had made Burke his final victim. On the night Helen was released, a mob attacked the watch house she was being kept in. They smashed windows and tried to enter the building several times. After moving her a couple of times, the mob always following close behind, police accompanied Helen to the edge of the city, sending her off into the night with 12 pounds to her name. She was never seen in Edinburgh again. Another miscarriage of justice was the lack of punishment for Dr. Knox. Where are the doctors was repeatedly asked at trial. Had the other murderers not been the focus of court proceedings, perhaps they would have been called. What happened to Hare is unclear. While there was a trial scheduled for him to be prosecuted, to the public's fury, nothing ever came of it. Knowing that it was unlikely for him to escape unharmed, the police were forced to aid his escape from the city. On the 5th of February, Hare left Colton Hill Jail, wrapped in an old cloak, and boarded a hackney coach to Newington. When Hare alighted, the driver called, Goodbye, Mr. Black, and I wish you well. From there, he was to catch a coach to England. In an act of stupidity, while waiting for the next coach, Hare grew tired of the bitter cold and entered the inn where the other passengers were taking refuge. Throwing off his disguise as he warmed up by the fire, 
he was recognised by Mr Sandford, a man who had been employed by relatives of Darth Jamie's to seek Hare's prosecution. When the guard blew the horn for the coach's arrival, Hare was the first at the door. His ticket was for the top deck of the coach, which was exposed to the cold night air so passengers were happy for him to take a vacant seat within the warmth of the lower deck. Mr Sandford, however, ordered the guard to take that fellow out and sent him back up to the cold, explaining to bewildered passengers the man's real identity. When the coach arrived at the King's Arms in Dumfries the next morning, news spread rapidly about Hare, and by 8am, a crowd of almost 8,000 people surrounded the inn. Clearly Hare couldn't get away without some form of justice. An old woman attempted to strike him with her umbrella, and after screaming at him, seized Hare by the collar and gave him such a shaking that he was nearly strangled. Hare became so exasperated that he told the crowd to come on and give him fair play. Worried about his inn being damaged, the owner called in the local magistrates to intervene. They had a carriage drive up to the inn's door and a couple of servers loaded a large trunk into it. Speeding off down the road, the carriage was followed by a large group while Hare slipped out of a window and crept along the stable wall to meet another carriage. As the mob realised what was happening, they pelted the carriage with stones, some smashing the windows and narrowly avoiding hitting Hare, who cowered on the floor. The horses galloped away, gaining the lead, and took Hare to a local jail where he would be safe under lock and key. The mob laid siege to the jail, blocking up the doors and demanding to see the murderer. They used a heavy piece of iron as a battering ram to break down the prison gates. When the street lamps were lit, people immediately extinguished them as they intended to burn down the gate with tar barrels they would soon set on fire. Over a hundred special constables were brought in to disperse the crowd. This they managed, but not without significant damage being done to the town and prison. Around 1am, Hare was pulled from his cell and told he must leave immediately to avoid another attack. Trembling, he asked for his cloak and bundle, but these had been left at the inn. He set out on foot, spotted at around 3am by a boy as he was passing Dodbeck. It was assumed by daybreak that he had crossed the border into England. It is believed he headed towards Newcastle, but from that day, Hare was never reported to be seen again. There are several rumours of what became of him. Some swear an old blind man with white hair that begged on a London street corner was the notorious criminal. Others swear he was stoned to death not long after leaving Dumfries. Whatever the truth, it is a fact that Hare never served any time for his part in the brutal murders of at least seven people. We don't know what became of Hare's wife, Mary, but reports state she returned to Ireland with their young son, never to be heard from again. The injustice of only one of the gruesome four being prosecuted is not lost on Edinburgh. Today, Burke and Hare still haunt the city. Many lovers of the macabre come to the city to seek out grisly history. Once here, it's impossible for them to avoid a tale of the infamous pair.
ghost tours spook their patrons with tales of Birkin hair. You can buy a dram at the White Hart Inn in Grousemarket, where it's said they found some of their victims. Dr Knox's anatomy school at the old Surgeon's Square remains, although you can't enter. And the infamous courtroom still stands on the Royal Mile, hidden behind St Giles Cathedral. The underground vaults tour claims that bodies were kept down there before being brought to the doctor's door. A visit to the National Portrait Gallery will bring you face to face with the pair. The death mask of Burke and life mask of Hare proudly displayed in the library room. If you enter the Cadies and Witchery tour shop on West Bow, you'll find the world's smallest Burke and Hare museum. The only exhibit being a small card case made from the skin of William Burke. You can even visit Burke's skeleton by appointment only at the university's anatomy museum. Clearly, these rogues are going to be remembered for many years to come. While they weren't technically resurrectionists, as they never actually disturbed any graves, Burke and Hare have undoubtedly become the most famous body snatchers in the world. For those of you who listened to our first episode, you may remember the hanging stains of Morningside, where two criminals were hung for highway robbery. If you find yourself on the Royal Mile, facing away from the castle, make sure to look down at the ground as you approach St Giles. On the right-hand side of the road, where there usually stands a piper, you will find three Lucken booths, golden bricks nestled into the floor. These mark the site of the gallows that Burke swung from all those years ago. Hello! Hello! We are back again. <laughs> Welcome to Wandering Ideas. I feel like I was about to launch into like an Eminem rap and it didn't happen. And I'm really sorry. Have but you got like at least a line for it? No. I feel like for anyone out there who thought I could rap, why? <laughs> I mean, all the years you've been watching horrible histories, you've probably got some raps in. Somewhere, possibly. Very deep. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about coffin torpedoes. Don't we all? They are the most American invention I think I've ever heard of. <laughs> I'm gonna make me some coffin torpedoes. I know that was heinous, but that is literally what I imagine when I think of it. Because it's basically a shotgun, right? It's just like pressure. Oh. Yeah, it's something I imagine from the South. Yeah, well, yeah, that was what the accent was indicating. No, I, I got that. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and what's the memorial called in Greyfriars? What was it someone fell through? Um, I can't remember his name. Bloody Mackenzie's tomb. Yeah. George yeah. Mackenzie. That one's pretty grim. Yeah. Do you know what? Like, the image that I get in my mind when I hear the words coffin torpedo is like 
you know, like a submarine firing a torpedo and it like breaks through the top of the water and like flies across the sky. I'm just imagining the like classic coffin shape, like pew, just like <laughs> entering the atmosphere. <laughs> You're secretly fired into space. Well, that would be buried in space. Yeah, but that's not as sexy. Is it? No? It doesn't have the same ring to it, I don't think. True, though I don't think being fired through the air necessarily counts as being buried. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, coffin torpedoes are just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I know. The la the laptop fell over slightly we're all fine we're all fine here yeah they're very interesting um i'd quite like to see a patent for one to see what like probably it probably. yeah if, if we can find one <laughs> we got it we got you if um if if we do find a picture of a coffin torpedo we will post it to instagram and maybe Twitter, and I am so sorry. Like, please don't at me. I'm not active on Twitter at all. And bless a an artist who we did a shout out for, um, Laurie. Um, she gave us a shout out on Twitter, and I literally just found it today. Aww, <laughs> and I don't know, you, I don't know when it was done. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna endeavour to do twitter to tweet oh wow yeah you can tell you don't use twitter no i don't i really hate it um, actually also i know several people who are very good carpenters or woodworkers um so if any of you can make a coffin torpedo obviously not for oh, the colors, we wouldn't recommend no that. no no but, but with like maybe chocolates or like <laughs> truffles that'd be great and if you could deliver it to my house my address is uh <laughs> yeah but I like, would like one like, now I'm thinking about it, like, how exactly did it work? Because I'm assuming the coffin didn't, like, get fired out of the ground. No, no, when you open the lid, there was, like, something, I guess, between the lid and the body that fired, um, like, shells? I don't really know how guns work. <laughs> Casings. <laughs> um, out at you. So if you, like, you, like, prize the side of the coffin lid off, it would, like, it would shoot you. Oh, right. I don't think they actually launched the coffin. That's <laughs> <laughs> like the image that I have of like the whole thing being the. <laughs> well, just like a priest coming into work in the morning, and there's just like a coffin, and then like two arms and legs at the bottom. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's not what it was. Uh, but I can dream. A boy can dream. Yeah. I mean, I definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's probably the the most creative way to protect your grave that we sort of yeah. discovered. Um, although the, the watchtowers that they built are pretty cool. Um, yeah, so my favourite watchtower, even though there's quite a lot in Edinburgh, is Enough that you can have a favourite. There's, there's, there's enough of them that you can have a favourite. I'm just saying, oh, yeah. like, yeah, it's not it's like... <laughs> um, 
But yeah, my favourite is the one, and I believe it's called the St Cuthbert's Parish Graveyard, which you can access by Princess Street and uh, Lothian Road. And a lot of people probably haven't even noticed it. It's near a bus stop, um, but there's quite a small watchtower. And my favourite thing about it is that there's actually office space within it. And every sort of few months, every few years, it goes up that the office is to let. And yeah, you can have your office in a watchtower in a graveyard, which I think is fucking rad. It's, it's quite a... Um... It's, it's sort of tall and slender as well, as far as graveyard watchtowers go. So I can't imagine, it's, it's not like, because um, in the New Carlton Burial Ground, the watchtower there is, like, chunky. It's a chunky boy. Yeah, it's like St Cuthbert's Parish's chunky cousin. Like, <laughs> you can't go in that one, though. It's completely, like, blocked off and overgrown. But uh, at one point, there was, like, whole, like, seven people families living in there. Because that... Um, that particular graveyard it, it is full of a lot of uh, well-to-do people who lived and died in Edinburgh. It's actually uh, one one half of the Carlton Burial Ground, because basically, if you know Edinburgh at all and you know where Waverley Station is, um, that used to not exist, and it basically used to be part of the Norlock, which we've talked about before, as far as I'm aware. Um, and above it was the Colton burial ground and when they made the station they basically decided that they, they needed to move probably like half the graves so they split the Colton burial ground up and now you have the the, the old Colton burial ground uh, which is still uh, in its original place but they literally dug up half of the bodies of the graveyard and moved them down the road to the New Carlton burial ground. Uh, if if you are from Edinburgh or you visit Edinburgh, I'd really recommend going because the the mausoleums which they uh, th- they made are stunning. Like they're like tiny buildings. Um, they're really beautiful, actually. Uh, and uh, but it, it is very steep, so maybe don't go there if it's <laughs> icy or really rainy. <laughs> Because um, yeah. it is properly built into the side of a hill, um, but it's it's quite close to the centre of town. Um, and if you're going to visit Carlton Hill, which most tourists do, then you may as well visit the burial grounds as well. Um, but it's it's very pretty. It's like if you go to Glasgow and you don't go to the Necropolis, did you even go to Glasgow? See, I've not been to the Necropolis yet, and I've been to Glasgow. Multiple well, I times. I have news for you, my friend. You haven't been to Glasgow. <laughs> I mean, I've mostly been there for work, so you know, I don't know. I don't know the city very well. I can get between the train station and work, and it's not all that far. So yeah, I've been going through a lot more for work, um, and every time I get through uh, near Central or Queen Street, I'm like, well, I could just go to Paper Chase for a bit. <laughs> I'm wearing trousers. I'm wearing my trousers from Monkey right now, nice. which are a great pair of tweed suit trousers. Um, the the necropolis in Glasgow has a bunch of really great stories though. Um, 
Oh god, what's her name? Like Iron Tooth Jenny? Is that it? I never ever remember what it's called. It's the Iron something vampire. Um, I never remember. There's also a, a crazy old lady called Jenny involved <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I can't, yeah, I can't it's remember, heroin. like, we, we don't, we don't live in Glasgow, we don't know about Glasgow, um, we'll look into it guys, yeah, cause it's, uh, I'm pretty sure there were some kids that like did a stakeout, and yeah, they, they were, so it was yeah. like, kind of an urban myth, and then a huge group of, I think primary school children, over like three nights decided, now, nah, like, we're not having this, we're gonna get this vampire out, of our area, yeah, and all of there's a graveyard it, there's a really really famous graveyard in London I think that has a that, that might have its own vampire I can't remember which one it is for the life of me we'll, maybe we'll do like an episode on famous and weird graveyards Sounds good to me. or like maybe a two-parter because there are so many great strange burial places out there um more than that as well there, there there are so many ways that the dead are treated you know by peoples who don't just put you in a box and stick you in the ground um <laughs> which would be very interesting to look into because I, I think we have a really limited view of what what happens to 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 a body once it's died and, and, and what we think is meant to happen like i know there's like traditions where you you basically mummify the the your your elders because you know they're 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 really special people and you keep them in your house and you, you dish up food for them, you dress them, you know, they're, they're a part of your life. Yeah, I know, like, Meg, Meg's making a gross face, which, you know, to be fair, I'm like, I feel like I'd really scare myself constantly. But but for, for the people who whose culture that is, it's yeah. probably so normal that they probably look at us and go like, why are you burning people? Like... No, I know, I've, just, I've seen so many horror films and like, the idea of mummifying your elders and like, preserving them is cool. Having them for dinner, weird. Not eating them, like, not having no, them for dinner. Like... <laughs> just having them sat there like, hey. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this is my spaghetti, alright, <laughs> keep to yourself. <laughs> yeah. No, like, that's the thing, yeah, the western view of death is so strict and sort of limited, um, mm -hmm. On that note, do you know, um, I, f I found out a couple of weeks ago about the the paint pigment, Mummy Brown, is literally so made from familiar. mummies, so oh. I can't, I, do you know, maybe I was probably listening to a podcast, that's what I'm normally doing, uh, if I'm not making a podcast, I'm listening to them, um, yeah, it's, it's, our, it's our whole life at this point. Um, but yeah, I, w I was reading something or listening to a podcast and they said something about like there being paintings which were painted with people and I was like, okay, you have my attention. Um, and what they were basically clickbaiting me to is that the 
uh, the Victorians were super obsessed with like Egyptology. It, it was sort of, uh, it sort of grew in tandem with like the heyday of spiritualism, which we're going to talk about next month. So it might very well come up again. But they basically got really obsessed with um, sort of using the the th these these mummified bodies, these these pharaohs, and like. Uh, in some cases consuming the body, like mummy was sold as like a tincture, as like a cure-all, it was like an old-timey, like, uh, I, I don't know, like serum or <laughs> retinol, there you go, today's equivalent is probably like retinol, it's like, put it on your skin, it cures everything, you know, um, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I knew they'd eaten the bodies, but I didn't know um, that the like mummy brown was a thing. Yeah, all. so they literally ground up the body uh, and made paint pigments from the powder, um, which was called mummy brown. Yeah, so there are paintings out there. Uh, do you know what? Maybe if we can find some of those paintings as well, maybe we'll also post that to the Instagram. Um, with, yeah, literal bits of super old people um, <laughs> painted into them. Uh, but, but then, like, I don't know, like, some pigments are made from, like, bugs and stuff. Oh, yeah, so. like, a huge amount of makeup back in the day was made from crushed up bugs. Yeah. Lots of different gross things. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, so it's, it's really not, it's not that big a deal when you think about it. No, I, I think it's more that, like, you disturbed someone's final resting place, you dug them up, you prized open their coffin, and you then... Dodge the bullets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dodge those bullets. The, those torpedoes. The coffin didn't hit you when it flew around. <laughs> You're imagining like a springboard. I literally am. Yeah, it's like... And it just like shoots off. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, you've like opened up this coffin and like you've then taken out the coffin's inhabitants and then you've crushed it up and eaten it or turned it into paint and it's like, I don't know, I just like, I, I, I love like morbid history and this kind of stuff but like when we're talking about like relics of people so often I'm just like leave them alone just like somebody please bury them like we have the technology these days to like you know like reconstruct things and there's something to be said for how much we can learn and then there's something else to be said for do we really need to know loads about this particular thing and should what is obviously the final wishes of these dead people be respected you know just because they're 2,000 years old you know they, they were still people albeit these people were probably inbred tyrants but I'm not sure that that's necessarily a reason to negate <laughs> their burial wishes <laughs> we all deserve to not be dug up and eaten or made into pain that's another t-shirt I think just we all deserve not to be dug up and eaten. Yeah, I think okay. just that. That's fine. 
That's why. Yeah, yeah. Flaunt, flaunt your bubos and that. I've already got so much to make. absolutely was um this ties in nicely as well because if you listened to monday's short halloween pod on um welsh halloween traditions then this will absolutely be right up your street so i actually only found this podcast i don't know i i think literally like a couple of weeks ago which i'm really annoyed about because there's so much good information in it but it's called um, The Ghosts and Folklore of Wales uh, with Mark Rees. And he is absolutely delightful. He, he He's Welsh. I'm not sure if he's like a professor or like a sort of actual sort of authority on Welsh tradition. I get the feeling that he might be. Like he, he knows his shit. He really, really knows his shit. Um, and even though he normally does like ghosts and folklore, he's got special Halloween episodes. And uh, so the one that came out on, I think this must've been last Thursday, episode 20 is Halloween in Wales specifically. So if you like that mini podcast and you want to know more, uh, Mark Reese is basically going to be able to give you so much more information, uh, you know, in depth. Uh, learnings about this stuff and he just he's so peppy like I just feel like he's the perfect I was saying this earlier the the perfect like Monday morning listen when it's like 7am and you're like on the bus to work like he's just gonna be in your ear and he's just so happy to be there he's he's really funny as well I don't know if it's intentional all the time but he is um, <laughs> sorry Mark <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, lots of fun, those ones. And I think that just about sums it up for today. Nope. But if you go away with one thing from this episode, it is please don't dig people up and eat them. Yeah, or sell them. Yeah, or sell them. Even if people are buying. Please don't do that. That's something that really irks me, actually, that is mentioned in the podcast, is that the doctors never face any kind of no. repercussion. And, and it was the same in a lot of different cases as well. Like obviously, notably a Birkenhairs case, but that doctor... Um, Dr. Knox. What's his name? Dr. Dr. Knox, yeah. Um, he also bought bodies from other grave robbers. It's, you know, he was doing this before Birkenhair. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that he, his apprentices, and like doctors around the country... And probably in other countries didn't face any comeuppance. Mm. It's really, really bad. I think it's worth noting as well that it didn't really stop until they brought in a law to say that they could legally have criminals' bodies after yeah. they'd been, uh, you know, killed because the law liked to do that back in them days. Um, so it, it went on for a little while and was really really bad in Scotland. I, I don't I don't really know if Edinburgh was the worst, but like I really wouldn't be surprised because the the medical school was so prolific. That's the thing like for 
any sort of institution like that to succeed, often there's a huge amount of sacrifice mm. and a lot of criminality is is born from this. Is mm-hmm. you know people were doing it because they could get money; they weren't doing it for fun. Like yeah. grave robbing's bloody hard, especially if you're actually grave robbing and not just murdering people in your home. Yeah. Um, digging up the ground is hard, and especially in frozen Edinburgh winters, like it's backbreaking work. So. A lot of the people who did it were medical students as well. So, you know, poverty prevails when you're a poor student and you need to pay your student loans. But, I I mean, the the issue of not having enough bodies uh, in medical research prevails today. So, like, if you've never considered donating your body to science, maybe think about it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, this week we're uh, sponsored. Bring out your dead! We, uh, we know a place. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's a legit thing. Like, you know, people have different things they want to do with, mm-hmm. their, with their body after death. And, like, in life as well, I'm very much an advocate for donating blood if you're able. And uh, being an organ donor, because, like, unless obviously it's against your religion, um, there's not really anything you're going to be doing with those organs once you're dead. So, uh, organ yeah. donation and blood donation is very close to my heart. And it's oftentimes the best sort of donations they can get are off of young-ish people who've not died from disease, so have died from trauma of of some kind. And that's really grim to think about, I know, but it's like, you know. Well, it's important. It is, yeah. no reason why you can't donate, then why wouldn't you? I also agree with giving blood. Though I am very scared of needles, apparently unless it's a tattoo gun, but also, I get I get so many tattoos. I also can't give blood, so like selfishly, I'm paying a lot of money for beautiful art, but I also can't donate. (laughs) Although the the last time I went along, they wouldn't let me do it because of low iron, which was like after she stuck me with one needle, I was like, do you know what? That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) Can I just say I get to hear this rant about once a month? Oh my god. It's not okay! <laughs> Why am I getting ill? Um, but yeah, so O blood types especially are really rare. My dad's O positive. Um, and I think AB negative is really rare as well. So like wherever you are in the UK or worldwide, like hospitals, blood donation centres always need your donations. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not really something we ever talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the only reason I know to do it 
those transfusions, he would have died. Mm-hmm. So it's something that, you know, you do it every, I think it's every six months if you can. Um, After which you get free chocolate. And to be honest, that's the only reason I do it. I was gonna say, as much chocolate as you want. That's why, I, that's why I want to do it. But my, my fear of needles sort of outweighs. Yeah, and that's fair enough. <laughs> At least you've tried. Like a huge amount of people don't ever think about it, don't even try. Mm-hmm. And like in a few years you might be able to, even if you don't, you've told people here about it. She asked me so many questions as well, which I hadn't even thought about. So like if you are thinking about because I, I lived in South Africa when I was very young and I don't personally know why that would make a difference because I don't know what was happening medically in South Africa at the time. I was a baby. But still, she was asking me that and I was suddenly like, wow, does this make a difference to like whether or not I can like actually donate? So yeah, it, it really gets you thinking about um, what you can and can't. They, they have some weird stipulations in terms of drug usage, which is in some ways discriminatory. And I can yeah, I can no, see why they do system. it, but I feel like like I I know people personally who have had various histories with um, consensual or non-consensual drug taking, and um, they they now can't give blood even though it's been many 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 years. So yeah. Come back. Come back to me. I feel like we've hit next month. Like, I feel like I'm doing a seance. Like, for all you guys know right now, like, I was saying, I was saying, I feel like I'm uh, uh, doing a seance. Like, 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 like for, for all the people like sat at home listening know right now, I'm like sat in a dark room with a ring of candles and my Mac, like, conjuring you into being. The, so the, the connection is not great right now, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna round this off. Um, thanks so much for listening today and we will be back next thursday with another podcast and just because we're fucking lovely um there will be another mini pod um on monday that one's going to be about irish tales and traditions of halloween um and then there will be a halloween special as well uh and another halloween podcast to come as as well um over the course of october Uh, So it's going to be lots of fun. There's going to be loads of content coming your way. If you're not already, follow us on Instagram, uh, WanderingEyeCurios. We're on Twitter at WanderingEyePod. And if you follow, then I promise I'll actually be active on there. I don't understand it. I am a grandfather. Um, If you could please um, subscribe to our podcast and review us as well. Please, 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 please. We've got a couple of uh, very lovely reviews on Apple Podcasts. It takes um, a lot of work for us to upload every week, but we have all this content that we're super excited about and we want to share it all with you and we want this, I mean it already is like a really big part of our lives, so yeah, please share it with your spooky friends, leave us a review, give us a five star rating. And um, we will see you next week. Goodbye, friends.
Wandering Eye Curios is brought to you by myself, Jasper Chanter, and my co-host, Meg James. The podcast is scripted and performed by both of us and produced by me. Music is scored and performed by Amy Marianne with lyrics by myself. Our intro song, For Better or Worse, is sung by us. Find us on Instagram at Wandering Eye Curios and over on Twitter at Wandering Eye Pod. Stay spooky, friends. Until next time. <laughs>